I'm Shannon Bream. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Kennedy, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, June 27th, 2022. I'm Alex Hogan. It's now been more than four months since Russia invaded Ukraine. The Russians are losing 100 to 200 men a day, similar to what the Ukrainians are losing. And there's this fundamental question that isn't answered out there, which is, how big is the Russian army in Ukraine now? This is the Fox News Rundown War on Ukraine. It's now been more than four months since Russia invaded Ukraine. The leaders of the top seven democratic economic powers are currently gathered in the Bavarian Alps. The main focus this year is the war, unity on support for Ukraine and increasing pressure on the Kremlin. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has urged the other democracies to not give in over war fatigue. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is not here, but he did speak to the G7 this morning. And just hours earlier, he called out the West for not sending more support and for not taking a more forceful approach. Partners need to move faster if they are really partners and not observers. Delays with the weapons transfers to our state and any restrictions. This is actually an invitation for Russia to hit again and again. Over the weekend, while leaders gathered in Germany, Russia launched a new attack on Ukraine's capital, sending air raid strikes to Kyiv. At the same time, Russian troops continue to tighten their grip on the eastern region. And now the fighting is moving into a new stage. So at four months, we are in essentially phase three of this war. This is Dr. Matthew Schmidt, associate professor of national security at the University of New Haven and an expert on defense and intelligence in Russia and Ukraine. Phase one is the initial invasion. Uh, phase two was the attempt to take Kyiv and the larger chunk of Ukraine, and that being rebuffed by Ukrainian forces. And phase three is really about what military planners call force generation. Uh, most people are talking about the color of the map in the east and the south and, and which part of the map is, is flooding you know, red and which part of the map is flooding blue for Ukraine. But what's really going on on the ground is a war of attrition, where each side is aiming to uh, kill or wound or really make combat ineffective more units uh, on the other side than are going combat ineffective on their own side. And the long-term hope in phase three is that while this is going on, we're moving 90 to 120 days into the future. So sometime in the fall, when uh, Russian forces might be able to reconstitute themselves, um, if, because what they're doing right now is you have these partial strength units that were pulled out of the west of Ukraine that are being pulled out of other parts of Russia. They're being stitched together with units in the Donbass. Uh, and so you have these Frankenstein units and they're not, well, they're not really combat effective. And the ones that are have been all thrown into this salient uh, in the east around the city of Serodonetsk. The Ukrainians also are suffering from exhaustion, uh, the, the wait to get materials from the West, to get weapons from the West. And they are not as combat effective, of course, as they were on day one of the war. And so you have two forces that are basically slugging it out and are exhausted and under-resourced right now. And what's happening is, is they're buying time in order to bring in other units that might be better resourced and well-rested to really restart major combat operations sometime in the fall or end of summer. 
Over the weekend, Russia launched new attacks on the capital, and this past week, Russia claimed two more settlements in the eastern Luhansk region. So what are we feeling in terms of morale now after 17 weeks on both sides? Morale on the Russian side appears to continue to deteriorate. So we're seeing uh, a good deal of evidence coming from Ukrainian intelligence that Russian soldiers are calling back home uh, to family or they're, they're calling into command structures on the Russian side. And they're saying things that indicate that Russian troops do not have enough resources. They uh, need ammunition, they need food. And in addition, they are skeptical, let's say, about the strategic aim of the war. Something that Westerners needs to understand is that Ukrainian and Russian culture, the peoples of both of these places, are very close. At least they have been historically and in, in recent history. There are about 2 million ethnic Ukrainians living in Russia. It's one of the largest ethnic groups in Russia. The languages are very close to each other. And if you look at sort of Russian culture, right, Ukraine is not considered an enemy. This is what Putin is saying. It's considered an extension of Russia. And a lot of these young men, you have to think 18 to 25 year olds, would think about going to Ukraine for vacation, would think about going to yeah. Ukraine to meet girls. No, it's almost an identity crisis for a lot of troops on both sides because they have family members who live on both. And as you mentioned, the language is so similar that even if you don't speak Ukrainian or you might not speak Russian, if you speak one language, you're pretty much able to understand the other person enough to get by. So even though we're four months in, it's still such a, a cultural shock for people who live there who are fighting or people who live there and are simply bearing the brunt of the war effort while they hope that it will soon end. Exactly. And it's worth noting that uh, most estimates suggest that over 70% of Ukrainian volunteers in the armed forces in the Donbass are ethnic Russian, right? Are native Russian speakers. And so in, in many respects, this looks more like a civil war than an interstate war. And the mm -hmm. Russian side is, like I said, very skeptical about undertaking this, but on the Ukrainian side, those links to Russian culture are severing very quickly. Yeah, I've met a lot of Ukrainian refugees who are fleeing who say they've completely cut off either friends or cut off members of their own family, saying that they wish to no longer have any connection with those people if those Russian counterparts can't support them in these moments. But that being said, when we're looking at the support of other countries, what is it right now that Ukraine needs the most? What is it that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is asking for in terms of weaponry from the West? Ukraine needs long-range weapons. They need missile systems and artillery that can match or exceed the range of Russian artillery. And they need them now. The way in which the Russian military is fighting in the East is to stand off, and it's essentially an artillery duel, the Russians don't want to commit these Frankenstein units because they're not highly effective. The Russians are losing 100 to 200 men a day, similar to what the Ukrainians are losing. And there's this fundamental question that isn't answered out there, which is how big is the Russian army in Ukraine now? Right. If mm -hmm. estimates show that that 190 sort of entered and maybe 150 are still there today, you're looking at something like between 20 and 40,000 deaths, twice or three times that many wounded. And so you could end up with a number of, say, 100,000 Russians who are, who are 
combat capable, not even effective, but just capable in the East. And on the Ukrainian side, we don't have good numbers on uh, the killed in action. So you're looking at something like over 15 and probably less than 30. And again, you know, two or three times that in terms of wounded. But some estimates have, and Zelensky has said this at times, that there are 800,000 uh, know, active fighters, right? Trigger poolers in the East and maybe a million more uh, reservists. And you see more and more reports now of sabotage and guerrilla warfare going on in occupied Russian, uh, Russian occupied territories. And so it's really very hard to get a sense on the ground of the rate of attrition that's going on with these numbers. But it appears to me that you are moving towards a point where they are essentially equal in terms of infantry on the ground. And the advantage goes to Russia in terms of long range weapons, but not infantry. And so what Zelensky wants is long range weapons that can preserve his infantry, keep them out of range um, of, of Russian weapons, uh, keep more of them alive for longer and, and at least hold or de degrade Russian military activity from you know, 40 or 50 miles out. I think the big question on so many minds is realistically, how long can this continue at this scale, be it manpower, be it weaponry, especially given that at the start of the invasion, people thought that this would be over much sooner than how we've seen it drag out now for four months. Um, people are saying now, uh, you know, Stoltenberg at NATO and American officials are saying we need to prepare for this war to go on for years. And I mm -hmm. think that's right. After Bucha and the atrocities that we saw there, and then the continuing atrocities that we've discovered in Mariupol and other places, the Ukrainian public has said, we're going to fight this thing to the end. And Zelensky has said over and over again in recent weeks that we're not ceding territory. Now that may change over time. The thing is that war is like calculus, the, the rate of, of um, you know, uh, loss of morale, the rate of loss of manpower, the rate of combat effectiveness changes over time. So what it is today might not be what it is in August. Um, and there may be a point where Zelensky wants to negotiate further on in this conflict. But right now, they're committed to go all the way. And the West has said it's committed to go all the way to Ukrainian victory. And, and so if that's the case, I think you're looking at at least a year-long conflict and, and more. And, and to be honest, people who claim that they know anything more than saying it's going to last a long time, um, you should be skeptical about. Nobody really knows, but it's going to last a long time. You've been listening to Dr. Matthew Schmidt. More after this short break. So many people within Ukraine have fled the country, of course, because of the fighting. And earlier this month, it was World Refugee Day, which is an event to raise awareness about the struggle for millions of people who are displaced from conflicts all around the world. And since February, there have been more than 8 million border crossings from Ukraine. Now, we do know that some people have started to go back to their home country, but still more than 5.2 million refugees are seeking refuge in other countries across Europe right now. That's right. You have, uh, that's more than 10% of Ukraine's uh, pre-war population. And that population migration is going to have uh, a major effect on the EU. If you think about this lasting, this war lasting a year or two years, you will have many Ukrainians who will decide to marry and settle down and start new lives in the countries that they've gained asylum in. 
mostly in the European Union. And so the demographic structure of a state like Poland is going to be significantly altered because of these migration patterns. In addition, of course, losing 10 million people is going to uh, you know, create a struggle for Ukraine in its reconstruction when the war ends. Yeah, and so many of the people that I've talked with say that they do want to go back to Ukraine whenever it's safe enough to do so. But that being said, for those who fled, they're setting up their kids in new schools. They themselves are getting new jobs. And there are allowances for refugees to live across the European Union for as much as three years in some cases. So who knows in three years' time what people will decide and how much their lives will have changed since then. And and one thing also that we should note is that there is this group within Ukraine of displaced people who are in even more jeopardy, and that is the LGBTQ community. And it is Pride Month, which is a celebration, and it raises awareness to celebrate equal rights and fair treatment for people in that social group. But let's talk specifically about that group within Ukraine. There's a lot of discrimination and it is extremely dangerous for members of the LGBTQ community right now. Uh, That is uh, part of the reason that Ukraine is moving towards the European Union. If they do um, uh, gain membership in the EU, then they have to change their laws to support LGBTQ plus um, rights. That's an essential part of the European Union constitution. And so, winning the war, achieving membership is critical to that community. Um, but until that happens, you'll see the, the, you know, the endemic cultural uh, prejudice play out. But I would also suggest that under wartime conditions, people have less interest in you know, um, engaging in that kind of bias than they did before the war because they're busy surviving. So I think that's really the dynamic that's going on now. And also, as these populations, which are primarily displaced from the east, are moving into Kyiv and other cities in the west, those parts of the country are more welcoming uh, than where they came from. The UN Refugee Agency has said that it's going to continue to try to help as much as possible, but still calling for international aid as these people have now been displaced for months on end and with no idea at this point of when they can go home. This is a country now that's looking at a trillion dollars in reconstruction costs. And that reconstruction won't happen overnight. It will take a decade or more. So to go back home to Ukraine, I would argue, really is going to take 10 to 20 years um, to have a place for these people to come back to. And the majority of them probably won't return. And this is the cost of the war on the Ukrainian side. Yeah, that's always, of course, such an important aspect to look at is the humanitarian toll of what this kind of war, what this kind of conflict can do to a population on an individual level and also on a population level as a whole. Dr. Matthew Schmidt, an associate professor of national security at the University of New Haven and an expert on defense and intelligence for Russia and Ukraine. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. 